glad that you're here this morning uh, to be around all these people, all these people. And you know how we interact with people is very key to how we're able to maneuver through the world. Isn't it true? You see people that might have incredible brilliance, but when they lack the people skills, it sometimes makes it difficult for them to see how they can advance their knowledge. And this is something about life that Kelly and I talk about a lot when uh, we encounter people. And maybe it's just because both of us, professionally and also back to our education, we're instilled with this concept that um, you know, there's different personality types. And what your type is then bears uh, responsibility on how you should interact with other people. The, the most popular of which is the Myers-Briggs. Are we familiar with the Myers-Briggs test? Has everybody taken their Myers-Briggs so you can figure out what of 16 classifications you are? There's a, you know, it's just basically it like going... a chart. A chart like the optometrist, right? When you walk in and, and see all those letters displayed right there, it's, it's fascinating because I remember taking it the first time and basically mine has take, stayed the same, but there was an article Kelly showed me just a few weeks ago. Podcast. A podcast. Hidden but brain. If you write down a podcast, does it then become an, uh, an article? Truth. Like there was yes. a transcript. Mm -hmm. Truth? Yeah. Yeah. Man, we should have worked how we interact better before mm -hmm. we started this whole thing. Yeah, it shows our personalities. But here's the thing is that what it was saying is that the Myers and Briggs, the two people, actually had no uh, profound psychological training that qualified them to make the test. <laughs> but it's okay, you know, like that's how, but they're, you know, it's like other psychologists have approved it, and that's, I guess, what baptizes it into into propriety, but it was interesting because then as recently, it was a couple years ago, I took my job, I had to take a different type of personality test, and there was like a headhunter working with me, and he said, Steve, I see this aspect of your personality test, he said, I'm telling you, your boss-to-be, he's going to ask you specifically about this, so how would you respond? And I told him, I was like, when I took the test, this is how I was feeling at work, that's why I put this around because we were, you know, doing some inane things that I said I hate some of this stuff. So it was fine. Sure enough, first question in the interview, my boss-to-be asks me about that. And over the last two years then, any instance where that issue has come up professionally, he chuckles to himself. He goes, I still remember your personality test. And I'm like, this sucks. Because you have to ask yourself, are you who you are or does the test then define, uh, define you as an individual? Now, one of the ways that people might define themselves could also play a little fun. For instance, my sister-in-law and my brother came up to town, and they invited me to a Harry Potter pub crawl. Now, her two did friends... Did you say pub crawl? I did. We talked about this earlier. We did. Whether or not it was going to be on the podcast. I was going to admit Dylan it. Dylan has too much, so you committed to pub crawl. I did. All right, Minx, go it's ahead. It's fine. So, she had a couple friends with her. They're all, we met at our house, everybody's getting ready, they've got their Ravenclaw, their Gryffindor, and the one girl looks at Steve and goes, so what house are you in? And the look on Steve's face can only be described as incredulous. The fact that she had no clue who she was asking, who we would never ever be the last person on earth to sort himself into a house. They call it sorting, I don't understand that. And the, the idea that hat. she was like, she said it with all seriousness was just really ridiculous, Very right? serious. Like, and like, they knew, they knew their houses. And I really honestly hadn't done one of those. Show of hands, if somebody came up to you and said, what house are you? How many would answer with confidence? There we go. All right, and the rest of us are sane. Go ahead. <laughs> 
But honestly, after that, I was like, well, my sister-in-law was like, you're a Ravenclaw. I'm like, what does that mean? So then I had to go back. I mean, I've read all the books. I've watched all the movies. I've just never sorted myself. So I was playing around online and realized that a a lot of it is based on the Myers-Briggs. So that's how they play around. And so then I'm like, I haven't, I don't remember my Myers-Briggs either. Because there's the two categories. It's like, I know I'm an extrovert and I knew I was a feelings person. But the two in the middle, whatever those were, I wasn't sure. And I took the test, like just the free ones, obviously, I'm not paying for it. And they gave me mixed results. And I found out that I vacillate between. That's why I don't know my two middle letters. I could be either one at any time. So there were four little sections on the chart that I could be. So now I'm very confused. Well, this gets back to a conversation that Kelly and I have a lot, because I'll try to push her in places in life, and she'll say, well, that's just not who that's I am. not who I am. And I just say, that's total crap. And not even with marital pastoral grace. I just say, that's total crap. Because I always come down to is that sometimes we believe that we are a certain way, but more so, we are oftentimes able to move into who God is helping us become. And in this tension and conversation that we have on a regular basis, where, where do we line that middle? Because there are aspects of your life that God has poured into you, right? Like it's, it's who you are as an individual. And, and even it might have been environmentally concocted that you are the result because of the two or three or four people who raised you. Mm-hmm. Like, but who, who are you as an individual and is that able to change? And that's why as we wrap up our studies within around the manger, we've been talking about the different people that showed up at the manger scene. We talked about the shepherds and last week the magi, the wise men. And this week we're going to discuss the surrogate parents of Jesus who were there around the manger and what happens then when the manger, you don't go to the manger when the manger comes to you. So we're going to look through some different texts here this morning. We're not going to open up and just read through one. We're going to go back and forth on some things showing how Mary and Joseph grappled with their new call. So you go ahead. All right. Hook me up with a verse. Luke 1, 26, 27. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. We're all familiar with the story ordinary, small town, ordinary girl. She probably didn't have a lot of expectations in life. You know, she wasn't well-known. She probably just, you know, she was pledged to be married, just figured she would get married and have kids. That was kind of her role. So the fact that she would be approached by God, and it even says, you have found favor with God, is what the message that the angel told her. So she was called to this huge task. So I kind of look at her as this, this personality of, okay, just go along, take what comes to you. This is my lot in life. And here she came with such a big tap. And then in Luke one thirty eight, how did she respond to this? She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. So here, I just love this first response. I mean, maybe she had a lot going on in her mind because this if you look in Luke 1. But yet, her first response is, well, what are you talking about? I'm a virgin. The second response was, okay, let it be. And we were talking about this idea, the idea that Mary was just this ordinary young lady raised in a small part of the world who was uh, just received this massive calling. You have the opposite end of that. You have Joseph. Joseph's life was supposed to uh, just really move into something greater. I would say where Mary's origin, 
extraordinary. It's really peculiar when you open up the New Testament. It, it starts and you're like, okay, let's start off with a you know, story of Jesus. And it ends up being a genealogy. Like Matthew chapter 1, when you open it up, it's a list of names. And by the way, the arrangement of names there are poetic, not historic, which means like there were some people omitted because at the end, Matthew wanted to line up perfectly. So people sometimes have critique that, but there's a bigger point that's coming out of Matthew chapter 1 at the introduction of Joseph, because we see that this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, going back to these patriarchs, David and Abraham, some of the most famous people who have ever lived, and then verses later down to verse 16, we get the introduction to Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 1, in this list, there are lists of some of the most famous biblical heroes that exist. And maybe they had little aspects in life that made them lacking, but still, Joseph's lineage was amazing. He had pedigree. And really, it's interesting because when you look back at his genealogy, you have kings in the list. It's like you get kings, and then here's Joseph a carpenter. So while on the surface, his family lineage seemed extraordinary, actually, Joseph was more like Mary in that. He was incredibly ordinary. And you know he probably had to look through his family tree trying to say, you know, how can I change my lot in life so that I become more than who I am and more living up to this lineage? So I, I would really believe it's when, when Mary ordinary comes and this arranged marriage likely because that's how it happened in the first century. When that arranged marriage happens, uh, Mary is probably like enthused because she's like, I'm marrying into this prestigious family and Joseph's probably like, oh crap, she's going to find me out that I'm just a fake. So the next part of Mary's story is, yes, after she accepts this task, this call upon her life. Then it says that she went to her cousin, relative, different translations here, Elizabeth. She went to see Elizabeth. And I just look at that and I think of, yeah, you go. If something big is upon your life, she hasn't said anything to Joseph yet that we know of. It's just her. She's got this secret. She's got this burden. Who do you go to? Do you have godly people in your life that when something big happens, you turn to them for prayer, for advice, for wisdom. The Echo Ladies have a Facebook page, and how many times do we post on there? Guys, I'm dealing with this. I need prayer. It's really nice. We know we can go to one another, right? So I see that in Elizabeth. And I also see that, I always think of this too, is that Mary's gonna be this surrogate mom. People are gonna look at her, and they're gonna think badly of her, for the rest of her life. No one's ever gonna believe her. And why should she take on this task? And I actually know a person I used to work with who was a surrogate mom. It's the only person I've ever met who actually carried a baby for another person. And I just asked her, I'm like, do you relate to Mary? How do you feel about this? And without my even prompting, she just said that she felt like the best way she could explain it is it was a calling. It was something beyond what I could explain. There were times I was concerned that others would not understand what I was doing, yet throughout, God gave me peace. And she went on to describe, yeah, she never doubted her decision, but there was days where she's dealing with all the physical pain and, you know, all the things that you think, well, I'm going to get a baby out of this. So in this, she knew she was going to be giving this baby to someone else. But the one thing I really liked is that when Mary approaches Elizabeth, and here she, who knows what all has gone on in her mind, 
she gets confirmation. Because what do we read? We read that the baby jumped in Elizabeth's womb, and she said, but why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So whatever doubt, whatever wonder that Mary had going on, God used Elizabeth to speak and confirm, yes, you didn't just dream the angel thing. Yes, this is the Lord that you're carrying. See, and on the other end of that, Joseph had no confirmation. We see in uh, Matthew chapter 1 is that Joseph somehow hears that his betrothed fiancé is with child, and the one thing he's bright enough to figure out is it's not mine, so therefore it causes inner turmoil, right? And there's this aspect then to where we're, our, our, we're opened up in scriptures the opportunity to what Joseph's train of thought is right here. And it's very interesting because here's Joseph who, you know, he's, he's engaged this young lady. Because it was arranged, they probably didn't have much interaction. Somehow he hears that she's pregnant, which means the word is getting around. Maybe it's just through, you know, close family circles. But he's trying to figure out what to do. Because in the first century, this would have been scandalous. And this would have put, uh, soiled uh, both Mary's reputation, but also Joseph's as well. So he's trying to work through this, and again, there's no confirmation. And I really think in this story, too, is Joseph's like many a typical man here, because whereas Mary's like, I'm going to go talk to this trusted person in my life, most men are like, I'm going to figure out this all by myself. There's no way I'm going to talk to another person, because that would be embarrassing. I'm just going to figure out how to maneuver this. I think, you know, sometimes where that's a strength that women at least see, like, let's, let's get into community to see what happens. I think men love to live on islands, and they like to be isolated within decisions. And again, these are some generalizations, and maybe within your life, you're the woman who's the opposite of that, who keeps it to yourself. You're the guy who's always crowdsourcing everything. I think the issue here, though, is you see two different approaches to that. And in Joseph's response, he's saying, okay, there's two things. Is that number one, I, I, I want to stay religiously obedient. And there were within the Torah lots of regulations of how it was supposed to play out if your betrothed fiancé was found to be with, with child. But one thing that the law permitted for is to make a public spectacle of that. It didn't insist upon it, but it allowed the opportunity for the man to do that. Why would we want to do that? Beyond cruelty, but to protect his own righteousness would have been to expose Mary. So while Joseph is working through this, we see that he's trying to stay observant to the scriptures, but at the same time, he has a heart of compassion as he recognizes is that this is going to be difficult for Mary too. So instead of pushing her through something that would be painful, he just says, I'm going to do so quietly. It's funny as after he works this out, then his confirmation, as you will, does come through an angel. An angel just says, hey, for points of clarification, it's okay, you're going to be surrogate parents, your wife's in the right, you just need to do what God has called you to do, and what does Joseph do? He's obedient to that. So sometimes it's difficult how we get there, and, um, but then we move along in the story. Well, I just think it's interesting too because as we were reading through this, I thought, you know, God's call is different for every person, but what he asked the two of them to do was it looked like sin to others, right? I mean, sometimes you think of, oh, I want to live out God's call, but when doing so and you're the only ones that know what's right, it's just a greater sense of, of responsibility because the two of them, I think that it, it probably drew them together is that they had this secret that no one would truly ever probably fully believe them, right? 
So I, I do think that that puts them together on the same team. Yeah, we've had those moments in our marriage and some of you in your lives and how you live out is that sometimes you've been privy to knowledge and you're like, if everybody just knew this, then I would look like the champ. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you just have to wrap that up and put it in your pocket and hold on to it because it's just what you're doing for the betterment of people. Mm -hmm. So what you have is this couple coming together, uniting, yeah. and living for the betterment of the Messiah. Except not fully together. Well, yeah, that's one of the funny things is that you can't go without notice, but I love this little quip in Matthew chapter 125. It's just like, even though they were together, okay, it's all good in the hood. It wasn't all good in the hood. Like they said, we're going to keep this at least clean above board so there's no, there's no doubt that this is the Son of God, right? No. So that took a lot of patience. I, I think that A lot of be, trust. I, we could do an entire sermon on this, but it would be <laughs> awkward. Okay. Yeah. My face Let's, would be as red as your sweater. I'm going to go to the next okay, one. Okay, go for okay. it. So we all know we're going we're gonna to skip over the birth. Merry Christmas. <laughs> we, we've we've kind of discussed that in the last couple of weeks with the shepherds and the magi. But I really want to look at Luke 2. And if you have your scriptures, this is where we are now. Luke 2 and 34, 35. So Mary and Joseph go to the temple. This is about 40 days after the birth. And this was this dedication time. It was a purification rites for Mary, which was to be done after birth for the females. And they interact with these two people who've been in the temple. And Steve referenced them last week. But one was Simeon. And it's really neat because they, you see him. He comes up. He holds the baby, and he, he has these words of praise, like, God has granted me this opportunity to see the Messiah. And it says in verse 33, Mary and Joseph marveled at what he said. Okay, right? There's this glow. Our baby's special. This is going to be amazing. Look what we get to do. And then the next words out of his mouth, Simeon turns to Mary and says, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Congratulations on your baby. <laughs> That's great news. So I can't imagine the juxtaposition of this glowing moment, and I'm going to be the mother of the Messiah too. Guess what? It's, it's not all going to be pretty. A sword will pierce your soul. It's going to be painful. Mm -hmm. The two of them, they have a job to do, and it's not going to be easy. No, and when you come to the manger, that's what you start to realize is that it does bring pain. And I love that this plays out through the life of Joseph as well, too, because we didn't talk about this with the Magi. The conclusion of that at the end of last week is once they discover where Jesus is and they don't report to Herod, Herod is angered, and he's actually in a murderous rage and unbeknownst to Joseph and Mary at the time, there was basically a death sentence carried out on their baby. That's pain, you know, like those who have been parents, you protect that child. To think that somebody would want to kill that child would just, just devastate you. And this is what's interesting that we see in the development of Joseph right now, is I think what we see is that as he comes to the manger, it changes who he is as a human being. Because again, what does he try to do first? When he hears about this news about Mary, he's trying to engineer a solution that he thinks is good that will benefit everybody. And then when he receives a dream 
uh, that says Herod will come and you need to go to Egypt. That's a choice, and it's a choice that, I don't know if that's part of the story that many of us realize. That's how they, not only that they, they escaped Bethlehem, but they went to Egypt. And for Jewish people, Egypt was symbolic of everything that was anti the God that they worshiped. Specifically, that's where they were enslaved, and coming out from Egypt was this, this view of liberation. So essentially what God is telling Joseph to do for the betterment of his family is, you know, go into this land of slavery and run away. Whereas most of us might say, no, I'm going to make a stand, I'm going to be active. He is telling him to specifically heed my call and run for your life and go to a place that's reviled. And I love it once we get to his response in Matthew chapter 2, verse 14. He did it, right? He responded. Because in this whole trek, what happens with both Mary and Joseph is that as this baby is brought to them, it's not just that they, you know, they are his surrogate parents, but it's also this idea that this whole experience takes who they were and it's this movement that transformed them to become the people that they needed to be for their baby. And that's why as we look at this journey that we've gone on, as we've talked about the people around the manger, is that that group of people positioned near baby Jesus, right? You have the shepherds who came in, and what do we say about the shepherds? They were the lowest of the low. They were the reviled. They were the ones that society had forgotten about, yet God bids them come. We look at the Magi, who were representative pagans, who had no even respect for the faith that God had established over hundreds and thousands of years, and yet he bids them come. And then he takes Mary and Joseph, who are the everyday, the ordinary, that maybe their LinkedIn profile looks great, but the reality is, is they're just putting that stuff up on the side to try to make them look as something more than they are, but just these two simple people it was a key point of the transformation because for both the shepherds and the magi, that coming to the manger was the culmination of their lives. But for Mary and Joseph, it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. Yeah, because now their job, as Simeon stated, was to raise Jesus, but it wasn't going to be easy. And we've all got pressures in our lives. And a lot of times, as parents, we always second-guess our choices. You parents out there have probably felt that. You compare your lives to somebody else. We didn't choose this, or we did choose that. Am I doing enough? Have I done too much? Am I saying the right thing or the wrong thing? Can you imagine how that's multiplied by raising the Son of God? What if they break him? (laughs) What if they mess him up? But we get a little peek in at age 12 when Jesus has gone to the temple, and they couldn't find him. And if you know the story, he, it says he comes back home with them, and he submits to them. He's starting to grow in his wisdom, and I just like this. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Just that little glimpse of Mary and Joseph are doing okay. They haven't broken him yet. Just a nice little piece to say that it was gonna be hard because they were gonna have to watch Jesus live his calling and that wasn't going to be easy to see, yet they were faithful in their, in their calling. Mm. And something that Kelly and I talk about a lot, especially with our church, with this congregation, is this, is that this is something that wraps up nice and neat. And if we were at the typical suburban mega church, this would be like this nice thing. It's like family day. And it's the culmination of your calling as a mom and dad to family. But here's the thing that is the reality in this 
uh, society today, and also I think it's reflected within our church, is that not all people are in this position. You're not, you know, you can't just say, okay, so I just need to be better parents to my child so that they grow up in the wisdom and favor of God. But some of us are just not in that position. Maybe you're past the point where your kids, you know, are, are gone and older, and it's that point to where you're like, okay, now what do I do and how do I apply this? Maybe you're a single person who's just like, this means nothing in my life right now. How do I take that experience of Mary and Joseph and apply it? And I think it comes back to this idea of who we are. So who are we? Are we just born this way? Are we this, you know, just the poor end of, uh, of who we are? We're like that and that is never changing. Or is everything up to our formation that we can become these people, you know, as long as we work towards something, we can achieve it? And I would say yes to both. And this point that I believe is critical and we really want to communicate today to us is this idea of what the shepherds and the magi and Mary and Joseph all had to grapple with. You are called. Since before you were born, the Lord knew you would exist. He knew who you were to be, and he had amazing plans for you. You are called. But at the same time, that doesn't then mean that in that calling, we are just on autopilot living through life, waiting for God to pour just different blessings on us to achieve that calling, because at the same time, it is our obligation to grow into that calling, to become who God wants us to be. And that's exactly what happened with Mary and Joseph, is that they were called at the beginning, but at any singular point, they could have deviated from that call, and yet you see them wrestling with it, making moves in their lives, changing their mindset so that they become the people of God that the Lord needs them to be. And it, and it didn't matter about exactly how they came to the table, their personality types we were talking at the beginning. Because I see Joseph, as we were saying, maybe he was more goal-oriented and had this lineage before him. And so maybe he had big plans. Maybe he had a five-year plan that did not include raising the Son of God but yet God's calling. So perhaps you're that kind of person. Maybe you like to make plans and, and you have certain goals that you are wanting to check off your list. But when God brings along something different and veers your path, how do you respond? It's sometimes easier to say, that's not part of it. That's not what I had in mind, but it's okay. God's got a greater vision for his kingdom and it might look different than what you planned. It doesn't mean you can't make plans, just be willing to adjust when something comes along. Or like Mary, if she had low expectations, maybe you're a person that doesn't, not seeking risks out there. Whatever comes, then you'll deal with it. But she was called to step up. And there's times when God might be challenging you to take a bigger step. And that may, maybe that goes against your personality but know that he will equip you. Because the thing is that none of us, even you, Steve, none of us are everything we need to be at first. But we definitely grow into God's calling. And I think that's why he provides the people that he does and the circumstances in our lives that change us. And, and I think we can all see that we're different people because we're here, we're with one another. There's some, some of you I may not have hung out with had it not been for Echo Church. 
But I've grown because of I'm in community with you all, with this guy. And the Lord brings circumstances for us together to grow. And that's why it's key for us to see at this time is that it all happens at the manger, right? It, it happens because of Christ. Because of who Jesus is, it changes who we are. So there's many different ways as we close out one year and open up a new one that you can say, I'm going to try to engineer a better life for me. And you might even be mildly successful at that. But the reality is, is that it will truly never be eternally transformative unless it is centered in on Christ. And again, that's why I love this season something. A lot of the times, it's why I hate it because I feel like we, we come off that path. But just to understand is that our, our encounters with Jesus should transform us. And, and as we do every week here, the culmination of that worship for us is communion. And I've said this past few weeks, but this is my favorite time of the year for communion because it takes us from the manger to the cross and it forces us to really grapple with who we are as human beings and how we view things. This time of joy is great, but it ends in great time of sorrow at Calvary. So every time we come together, we have this chance to be able to acknowledge Jesus and in doing so, acknowledging where he's brought us and where he needs us to go. So since this is the last time before Christmas that we're communicate together, we're gonna do things a little differently here to make sure that you, know, you ease on the Myers-Briggs will be fine, you eyes are just not going to appreciate it at all. But we're gonna stand up and we're gonna come forward and we're just gonna gather around in a circle and we're gonna pass around the trays. We're, gonna, we're going to have communion together as we come around the manger, we come around the cross to remember who Jesus is. So will you do us a favor? We stand up right now and come forward here. And there will probably be issues of space and movement, but we'll manage. Again, one of the benefits of small church is that all these people who are gone on Christmas, pagans, um, will get a chance to come in. You can come around the front pews right here. That whatever, it's really not a great circle, it's yes. It's kind of like this, this opportunity. Because what happens within this too is, you know, we pass trays all the time. You know, there's different ways we do it. We have people in the aisles. We used to just pass the trays back and there's always moments of awkwardness. I think that's something that's beautiful about communion is there ought to be moments of awkwardness, you know, where you don't get the full slip of, you know, your, your juice or you drop your piece of bread or you struggle to get that perfect hand off of the tray because that just really ought to remind us the imperfection of us and how that means nothing because of the perfection of Christ. So um, Kelly's gonna pray, we'll pass around the trays and let's just take this time to remember the cross and to circle around Jesus.